0: With that, we begin a new study of the Gospel of Matthew. This study will take us about 18 months, give or take some weeks, uh, depending on how... Uh, whenever I start a study, I have an idea of of how I'll preach it, but there's always mid-course corrections along the way. Um, and so I, it's going to be about a year and a half to get through the Gospel of Matthew. I'm really excited about it. Um, every couple years, we we sort of loop back around to the Gospels. Um, While the whole Bible points to Jesus, and Jesus is really in all of his scriptures, uh, there's something special about taking some time, uh, spending it with his earthly ministry and being challenged by the words he spoke and said in his life. Um, So my my prayer is that this next year, we would um, just sort of rekindle um, our relationship with Christ uh, anew through this Gospel. With that, let's pray, and then we'll we'll get into the text. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you uh, for the Gospel of Matthew. Lord, we pray that as we start this study, as we begin this endeavor of of working our way through your word, Lord, we ask that your Spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text. That you would, uh, Lord, that you would speak to each of us. That Lord, over this next year or so that we would grow um, deeper in love with christ that we would be uh, more assured of who he is lord that we would see the evidence and and for matthew's testimony of his kingship that lord that we would just be in awe of you lord as we sing songs about coming and seeing the christ uh, through this christmas season i pray that we would come and see discover him anew that our faith would grow, that we would be stretched, that we would ultimately be encouraged. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for this beautiful gift that you've given, the payment of our sin um, through his death on the cross. And so, Lord, as we celebrate Christmas, we pray that you would help us to keep him at the center of all that we do. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right, so a new series. uh, Today we are covering the very the first seventeen verses of matthew you 'll be excited about that until you discover that all we 're covering today is a genealogy so and so begat so and so if you have a a, a a King James version and so the wind is out of your sails already we do believe that the that the Bible is the inspired word of God and to stand behind that I'm actually going to read uh, every name here right now unless i can get a volunteer to do it so lord help me i will i will read this matthew chapter 1 verse 1 the record of the genealogy of jesus the messiah the son of david the son of abraham abraham was the father of isaac isaac the father of jacob and jacob the father of judah and his brothers judah was the father of perez and zurah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amimadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amnon, and Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shiltiel, Shiltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was the father of Abahud, Abihud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, the Messiah, 14 generations. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm actually really excited about this text because it's the genealogy And after reading it, there's nowhere to go but up because all of you have very little expectations. So I can only succeed at this point. Um, You guys stayed awake through the reading. The genealogy is often uh, parts in the Bible that we sort of give ourselves freedom to sort of skip over. If you've ever read through the Bible in a year, you have total freedom that whenever you see a genealogy, it's like, Sweet, I can just skip over it. Like, and if you're in the Bible in a year and you have the Old Testament, sometimes it's like three chapters or four chapters. You're like, my reading is done for today. I can walk away. All it is is genealogy. Um, it actually is very important. But before we get to the genealogy, I want to sort of fill in the gaps for what happened between last week and this week. Last week, we finished Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet to speak in the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament. He wrote in 397 BC, 400 years before Christ. A lot of things happened between uh, his book and the opening of Matthew or any of the Gospels. Um, a, A few people came on scene. Uh, Each one of these guys and each one of these incidences, in their own right, you could spend a great deal of time studying the history and the stories and what they did and and the drama associated with their lives. I don't have time to go into each of the the minutia of what happened. Um, the, The first guy to come on scene, so if Malachi spoke 400 years before Christ, The next guy that would come on scene is this man, Alexander the Great. He would arrive in about 356 to 323 BC. So that's about, if my math is right, we're some 40 to 50 years after Malachi. uh, Alexander the Great comes on scene. He died at a very early age. He was the ruler of the Greeks and his kingdom uh, began to dominate the world. One of the things that he did as he was dominating the world, was he wanted to unite language. And so he forced Greek upon all of the peoples. It became the lingua franca. It was the, the, the language of the trade. If you lived during that time, you had to speak Koine Greek. Koine Greek um, is the language that the whole New Testament is written in. It was the language spoken by, by the people in the stories of the New Testament. Um, it, it was a powerful thing that happened. Um, it was such a powerful language. And because of the scattering, Malachi, we, I told you guys that in 722 B.C. and 586 B.C., the nation of Israel was taken away into captivity. Uh, the Jewish people were scattered. Very few Jewish people maintained their ability to speak uh, and function in Hebrew. Uh, as we get into the New Testament, as we go through Acts, we see that there was tension amongst the Jews. There were the nat- the native-born Jews in Jerusalem, the minority, who spoke Hebrew. They, they stayed current on everything Jewish. They were the minority, but they were the the more proud ones. They thought that those that had been carried away in the deportation that took on the language of the people that they were in for many generations sort of sold out to the culture around them. And so you have the, the Hellenized Jews and the native Jews. But most of them were Hellenized. Most of them spoke Greek. Uh, in 300 BC, the, the language had become so dominant that they began to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew Into Greek. It was completed in 132 BC. So, 130 years before the birth of Christ, they completed the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Hebrew scriptures translated into the Greek. It was the Bible that they used. As you read through the New Testament and you see um, quotations from the Old Testament, most translations in the New Testament, when you see all capital letters, that means they're quoting. Old Testament now if you see the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament and you do your research and you find the passage that they're talking about and you read our Old Testament there's going to be a a, a variance it's it's not going to be word for word and for years I kind of shake my head and go well this says this is Psalm 22 why why when I go to Psalm 22 is the wording so I mean it's saying the same thing but it's so vastly different the reason for that is, is our Old Testament is translated from the Hebrew. We, we've gone straight from the Hebrew to the Old Testament. The New Testament writers and during Jesus's time, the Old Testament they were using was the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And so that explains the variance. So Alexander, he had created a world where language and thoughts and ideas could spread rapidly. Um, during this time, around 168 BC, 168 years before Christ, Alexander the Great had uh, died. He, his kingdom continued to go on. Simultaneously during this period, the Roman Empire was sort of churning. It was growing, but but they hadn't done anything at this point yet. In 168 BC, a, a guy by the name of Antiochus. Um, Epiphanes the fourth i probably hacked his name a greek guy he wanted to continue what alexander the great had done with languages namely he wanted to unite the world through religion and so the the biggest thorn in his side were the jewish people in jerusalem who continued to worship their god and so in 168 bc what he did is he went to the temple he erected a a, a pagan idol Uh, That was the God that all of the Greeks, or I should say represented the gods that the Greeks worshipped. He took a pig and he slaughtered the pig and scattered the blood amongst the temple, desecrating the temple for the Jewish people. Worship there stopped. Uh, Judaism was forbidden. If you were to circumcise a child, if you were to practice any sort of Judaism, the punishment would have been death, the death penalty. Um, This Obviously, it was an uncomfortable time. It was one of many, many times for the Jewish people that they faced persecution. Um, there's a historical period, some books. Um, I always wonder how much to share. Uh, being raised Catholic and then becoming Protestant, it wasn't sort of... Uh, my conversion to becoming Protestant was never coming to an understanding of Catholic doctrine and saying this doctrine sort of disagreed. this it's not in alignment with, with Protestant Christianity. I, I left because of boredom. I was in boot camp, and I, the first Sunday, I went to both Catholic and Protestant service. that got me out of work. And then the next week, they said, you can only do one. And so then I'm like, well, oh, man, the Catholic church was just as boring as I remember as a kid. The Protestant service, a little bit later, a little more upbeat, and so then I'm going to go to that one. And then I sort of became Protestant during that period sort of kind of I don't think I'd actually convert for a few years later but it was sort of during this season in Protestant circles that I would hear Protestants talk about oh the Catholics have a different bible I'm like really I mean I don't I didn't have enough knowledge I kind of was like it's a totally different bible cuz the stories you guys tell are sort of seem familiar and I started Researching, well, where does all of where do these claims come from? So, just to be clear, um, the Catholics have the same Bible that we have. They they use the same tra- the same everything. They have a, there could be a slightly different translation, but what they include in their Old Testament, I forget if it's four or six. There are many apocryphal books. Apocryphal books are uh, during the silent four hundred years from from four hundred B.C. to the birth of Christ. Um, no prophets came, but there was a lot of history that happened, and a number of these books are historical books that that, that Catholics would include in the Old Testament, and and through a lot of church history, arguing and figuring out uh, what are the uh, uh, canon, the books of canon. I'm not going to be able to say it right now because it's already twisted in my mouth. Uh, I I can canonized books. Canon is a rule. We don't, we basically, does it meet the measurement? Do any of these books claim to be scripture? And so I don't think that they're scripture. But on the Protestant side, when you get into seminary, Bible college, that sort of thing, these are very important historical books. Okay. All of this dimension, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, it records the period from 168 B.C. to 160 B.C. It tells the story of this guy desecrating the temple, doing all of this stuff. There was a band of brothers, the Maccabees, that basically revolted against what this guy was doing. They fought many, many battles and eventually were able to get the temple resurrected again to to be able to light the menorah within the temple Uh, tradition holds that they found enough oil there that when they lit the menorah the menorah stayed lit for eight days that was enough time for them to refine more oil to keep the worship going in the temple Um, this is where we get the holiday that starts on tuesday hanukkah so the jews today celebrate this this these maccabean brothers who basically took back the temple Got worship going and reinstu- reinstituted um, what was supposed to be happening and doing the right way. It's a fascinating time in history. So that happened. Going from there, uh, we see Rome in 300 A.D. or so, following um, the time of Alexander the Great. The, the Greek Empire was was dominant, but in around 300 B.C., Rome for the first time expanded their borders beyond Italy that we know today. And they began to slowly um, develop over the course of 300 years so that in th- 44 BC, so 40, basically 45 years before Christ would come on scene, they had created, they had their first emperor. Um, I, I think it was like 30 years before. The first emperor was a guy who died, and they said, this guy will be our eternal emperor forever. And then in the 30, 30 years before Christ, they would begin to have their emperors. Rome was fascinating. They took the language that the Greeks had developed, and they began to conquer the world. They built Rome uh, roads known as Roman roads. Their soldiers could travel from Rome to anywhere in the known world very rapidly. Today, you can go to Europe and you can see the ruins of these Roman roads and the great architecture. If you go to Israel, you can see the the great colonies that the Rome that Rome built to sort of maintain structure. They had a great army. Um, uh, th- th- this time was a, in many ways was a was a was a good season. Uh, it depended, I guess, on who you talk to. But they, they were known for their great peace, known as Pax Romana, that under the Roman rule, under their soldiers that had sort of taken over the world, there were, there was great freedom to worship, to practice your religion, as so long as there were no riots, as so long as there was no friction. This is where the story of Jesus going to the cross, that, that there was tension, and there were fears of riots, and, and the rulers there would, would sort of, quelch the the drama because they didn't want a right to break out. They needed to maintain peace. One of the downsides of, of the Romans, in order to fund all of this, they used heavy, heavy, heavy taxation. The way taxation would work is uh, Rome would sort of parcel out the world that they owned. Um, they would have portions and they would speculate. You, we almost have to think of farming. How much they sort of anticipated a certain plot of land would would, would get ta- be how much taxes would be produced out of this land. Rome would then sell that portion of land to to, to like a senator, a high ranking person with a lot of money. These guys would come in, they would speculate, they could they could own buy the rights for five years of this land. Um, the, Rome would sell it for well under what they thought could be pull, brought in. The, the speculator, the hiring guy, would buy the rights to this. He would pay, buy the piece of land from Rome. Then he would hire his tax collectors. He would tell his tax collectors, I need this much money from you. And so then he would send out his tax collectors amongst that portion of land, and the tax collectors would basically pay that guy, The money he speculated. So he would make a profit. He would obviously charge more than he paid from Rome. Then the individual tax collectors, anything they could extort out of the people, they could keep. Because they just had to pay the guy they were working for X amount of dollars. And then anything in addition to, they would keep for themselves. That's how they would make their money. And they were very effective at doing this. Because they had Rome on their side, the authority of Rome on their side. They had the soldiers there to enforce what they were doing. And so in Israel during this time, there were Jews who needed work. And so they would become tax collectors. If you were a Jew and you were a tax collector, you were hated. You you were not allowed into any synagogue. You were certainly not allowed into the temple. Your family could disown you. The rabbi said, you know, you're to be truthful, but it was okay by the rabbis. If you were speaking to a tax collector, totally sanctioned to lie to them. They were hated. They were the worst of the worst of the worst. And the author of our book that we are studying today was a tax collector, Matthew, Levi, an outcast, a sinner. Jesus was scoffed for hanging out with him. Um, when we look at the various Gospels, they all have a different emphasis. I'm going to look at the... uh, Matthew is a boring introduction. It's a terrible introduction. I mean, I I would start at verse 18. When we look at Mark, Matthew, Mark, the introduction of Mark, Mark hits the gates, out of the gates running. Mark is... Giving a bird's eye view of the gospel, he's, he's highlighting um, Jesus as the suffering servant. And man, when you start Matthew, look at how it starts. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make way Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he just, boom, goes from there, skips. Forget the baby Jesus. Forget all that stuff. Let's get to the, 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 when Jesus starts his ministry, let's show very quickly who he is. Let's get to the main point. That's how Mark starts. If we go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, we go to Luke. Luke is the only Gentile writer of the Bible. Luke was a physician. Luke didn't witness these things. He's a physician, but because of his writings, he would become known as Luke the historian. That as he learned of Jesus, he, he did a very careful examination that, to study who is this Jesus. And, and he wrote so that people could have the exact truth of what happened. Um, he, his emphasis was that Jesus is compassionate and cared for outsiders. The theme of Luke really is the son of man. And Luke starts out this way. in as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught And then he starts the story from the birth, backing up. He goes into the account of the angel appearing to Zacharias, uh, announcing um, the coming of John the Baptist, the fulfillment of the Messiah. His book is long. Luke and Acts are really one gospel, his whole writing. But man, he starts out and it like grips you. Then we go over to John. Now, of the Gospels, a little uh, education here. You'll hear a term referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic Gospels refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They, um, the, the content of Matthew, Mark, and L- Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar. Um, it's sort of, if there was a crime scene and uh, and the detective goes to start investigating the witnesses and asking, what did you see? And they have three different people. The three different people are going to give very different accounts from different angles of what they saw, but it's going to be sort of the same material. And so Matthew, Mark, and Matthew, because I, I want to say all four, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all sort of... Highlight different angles of Jesus's earthly ministry and life. Now we get to John. John is very different from the other Gospels. Uh, the Apostle John wrote the uh, the Gospel of John at the very end of his life. He was the only remaining Apostle. Um, the The material included in John's Gospel ninety two percent of it is unique to the Gospel of John. He's writing to he's writing to Greeks. He's writing to Jews. Well, you get to the end of his book, and he tells us that the reason that he wrote his gospel is that he desires the non-believer that is reading his account that they would come to faith in Christ. And look how he begins. It's fascinating. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has not come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John and he dives into John the Baptist. It's a gripping story, but he ties it all together by verse 17 so that he would have appealed to both the Greeks and the Jews wanting to know more about Christ. Then we come to Matthew. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and brother. (laughs) Somebody needs to give him like lessons in creative writing, like you gotta start out with something that like grips your attention. It's not how he starts at all. But see the thing about Matthew, Matthew it's he's not we're not his audience. Matthew is written to Jews. Jews, and I always feel compelled to say, all of the New Testament is about, this is a Jewish book through and through. This isn't like Jews and not, it's all Jews. It's believing Jews who believe in the Messiah and there's Jews who reject the Messiah. It's not like the Jewish people were bad. It's a, this is a Jewish story that we've been included into. And so Matthew is writing to Jews who have questions about who Jesus is. Matthew writes to prove that Christ is the promised Messiah. Um, I don't know how far back you guys can go. I know know Ruth is big into Ancestry.com, and she always scolds me when I say, I can tell you who my grandparents are in name. When I get to my great-grandparents, I had to do a little math during the last service. I was kind of embarrassed. But so we each have eight great-grandparents i think i can tell you the first name of my one of my great-grandparents i think and all the people were are scouting me like come on i can tell you a lot of some of you can say i can tell you all of mine. and i started saying well how many of you can tell me about your great great great-grandparents like most of us we we just don't know a lot of our by by the time you get to great-grandparents your memory sort of faded like this is Like, my kids will know me. Hopefully, their kids will know me. I'm not banking on their kids knowing who I am unless I do something really outrageous so that I'm sealed in history for them to shake their head out. I haven't done it yet. Um, I don't know what it's going to be. As a seal, I can't tell you. I I get so skeptical. at least once a week, maybe more, may, well, at least once a week. I'll, I think it's comfortable. I'll have somebody say, oh, so I met so-and-so, and they met a seal. And what I don't say to them, but my first reaction is like, it's another phony. And I'll talk to them, and I'll kind of go, oh, that's really great. Like, like uh, do you have his name? And I'll write the name down. Then I'll call my buddies who have the list, like the list. And I'll say, hey, so-and-so, I met somebody. Can you guys validate this name? Like, this, there's a person with this name claiming to be a SEAL. Like, by the way, yep, that person's legit. There's and then other people, most of the people, it's like, that. Per- nobody by that name ever in all the years at all. There was, like, one herald in pre-World War II with a different last name. Like, they come back, and it's like, okay, that guy's not legitimate. Um Kelly, actually, who's not here right now, but Dan is, but I guess Dan, I've never actually caught confirmation from Dan. Kelly's been trying to, to, she's found a new animal that she, you know, she wants to kind of ditch the idea of a dog or a cat. Apparently, the new animal to get is a miniature pig. I've seen videos on Facebook say, look, cute and adorable. And I remember talking, I'm like, Kelly, you're crazy. She's like, no, 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 they're like, they're better than dogs. They're better than this. They like... And I'm like, how much do they run? She's like, oh, if you're going to get a mini pig, they're going to cost you like six, eight hundred dollars. I mean, you're going to get you pay where you get, you know. And then she starts saying, well, you got to be really careful though. You really need to check out the 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 history of the pig. It's it's genealogy, pedigree. So I remember Kelly had been talking to me, and I happen to be over at Debbie's house, and I'm like, yeah, Kelly wants to get a pig, like a mini pig, and she's like, oh yeah. I have three neighbors. They each have a mini pig that they're all 300 pounds now. She's like, I can't tell you how many people in Valley Center were sold this miniature pig that, uh, that turns out it was just a pig that kept growing. And the point I'm trying to make is for me, my, my genealogy, it doesn't really matter. But if I was royalty, it would matter. Like royalty... I don't follow the kings and queens. Anna Sp- follows Spanish royalty. There are people who like English royalty and I don't know even their name. I'm not even going to, but all of their names, like they know their all of their lineage. It's very tracked so that if a baby is born, it's very, they know who their genealogy is because that proves that they are in the royal line. And And this is what Matthew is doing for us, for the Jewish reader. In his genealogy, he very clearly is pointing uh, to the reality, the truth of Jesus's Messiahship. And so the reason he starts the way he does is to, to make this case. Because if Jesus doesn't have this kingly line then none of this matters. And this is why it matters to us. If Jesus doesn't truly fulfill prophecy, if he doesn't have the pedigree that aligns with the promises in the old Testament, we shouldn't follow him because unless they're all true, it's worthless. And so Matthew, while it seems boring to me, he's starting right out of the gate. Now I want you to look at verse 17. I want to sort of outline this to sort of frame the introduction of Matthew. Matthew, in verse 17, we read, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. If you write in your Bible, I have Abraham and David highlighted. There's importance here. So he's moving from Abraham to David, telling you there's 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon. So the next thing I have highlighted is Babylon. So that from King David To the deportation when they were taken to Babylon, there's 14 generations. Then the next thing I have highlighted is Jesus was born. So he goes 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon, the Messiah, 14 generations. So of this list of names... We see we move from Abraham to David, 14 generations, from David to the deportation, 14 generations, from the deportation to Jesus, 14 generations. He's showing the the genetic list of where Jesus came from, although I'm going to cover more of that later. Verse 1 of Matthew says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, King David is highlighted. He doesn't start with Abraham. He starts with King David that came through the son of Abraham. We as Gentiles, we just read these names, but to the Jews, these two names are critical, super important. If you would turn with me back to Genesis chapter 12. and Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we see the first covenant that God has made. This is referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. Israel doesn't exist. Israel's unheard. This is just Abraham. Pagan worshiper. God kind of calls him out. There's a lot of problems in his own life and in his history, but we don't have time to cover that right now. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. This is the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land, which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so then from there, God gives the command, Abraham goes by faith, Abraham steps out, Uh, Chapter 12, 13, 14, we see sort of Abraham going out, uh, obeying God. Chapter 15, we see this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant. God, um, once he gets there, God makes the covenant covenant legitimate or legalizes it. It would almost be the same as uh, he had a contract, and it's not until he got there did it get notarized to make it a legal binding document. In Genesis chapter 15, Um, we'll start at verse 12. I really like this whole story. I don't know if I want to, I'll just start at verse 12. Um, verse 12, Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, the Abrahamic covenant is basically notarized. Uh, Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. "'God said to Abraham, "'Know for certain that you, your descendants, "'will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, "'where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. "'But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, "'and afterward they will come out with many possessions. "'As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. "'You'll be buried at a good old age. "'Then in the fourth generation they will return here, "'for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete.' It came about when the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces. Okay, now let me explain this before. But, uh, uh, prior to this, God told Abraham, go get a couple animals. I'm not even going to begin to like try to say I remember what the animals are, but there's like a goat and a not a pig. I know there wasn't a pig. Uh, there were some birds, but there's like five or six animals. And God said, Go get these animals, and then split them in half. And they would take where two hillsides sort of met to form a valley. You would split the animal in half. You would lay each half on the side of the hill. The blood would drain into the center. This was a very common form of making a contract. If I was making a contract with somebody, instead of signing a piece of paper, what they would do is they would walk back and forth in the blood, and they would sort of look at each other. They do it a certain amount of times. And As they're doing this, they're saying, if I don't fulfill my side of the obligation, then may this blood be my life. And if you don't fulfill your side of the obligation, then may this be your life. So Abraham's told to do this. He realizes we got a problem. Because I don't want to be making a vow with God of this magnitude because I know how incompetent I am. He's terrified. God puts him to sleep. And then we see this fire and smoke walking back and forth. This is God. And the significance about this, this is a covenant made with Abraham, but it was not contingent on Abraham's faithfulness. It's totally dependent on God and his faithfulness. And so they passed between the pieces, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the, U- the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates, and a bunch of places basically laying out the borders of the land. So the promise made in Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, is sort of notarized here. It's, it's, it's placed into action. If we turn the pages a few towards the back of the Bible, stop at Second Samuel, And in 2 Samuel, we're going to look at the second covenant. 2 Samuel, it's like eluding me. Maybe I went past it. There's always a table of contents if you're not too proud. I always do that. I always do that in secrecy because I'm too proud. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Okay, this is a different covenant. This is... We fast forward a few years. We have the Abrahamic Covenant that God's made this this promise that through Abraham He will be a blessing to all nations. Uh, King David sits on the throne. God comes to him and he makes this Davidic Covenant, and he says in verse twelve of chapter seven of Second Samuel, "When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, that means he died, I will raise up your de- I will raise up your descendant after you." Who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with a rod of men and the strokes of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul when I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Notice that word forever. It comes up multiple times in accordance to all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. This is a great promise. God says, through your line, a king that will reign forever will come. The Jews look to Abraham. They looked to David. In Acts chapter 2, if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 2, this is a main point. Jesus was crucified. He was buried. He rose from the grave. A number of days later, he ultimately would ascend. And then 10 days after that, they would have Pentecost. The early believers were waiting. The Spirit came upon them. There was a huge crowd. Peter then presents the sermon to these Jewish believers who were there from around the world. And the argument is the case that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of this Davidic covenant that was promised um, in, in Acts chapter two, verse. Uh, what do I want to start? Twenty-two. This is Peter standing before the Jews. Notice his reasoning. He's going to quote from David's writings in the Psalms concerning this promise, and he's going to link it to Jesus. Verse twenty-two, Acts chapter two, verse twenty-two. since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, And knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured forth. This, which you both see and hear, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And I love how he ends there. He basically said, you guys just killed God, the promised Messiah, the one that David spoke of. And he says, see you guys later. He's about to like, he's done. The, the, the story goes on to say that they were basically cut to the quick, that it was like a knife into their heart. What, what do we do now? What have we done? And then Peter says you need to repent and be baptized and follow after him. And some 3,000 Jews converted to following the Messiah. This is a huge testimony of Christ. Going back to Matthew. uh, This gospel of Matthew is so distinctly Jewish. If you have Jewish friends that are interested in Christianity, don't, don't point them to John. You point him to Matthew. I'll never forget one guy who I spoke of. I, th- I think it was in seminary. We were going through seminary together. And it turned out that he was like a very diehard Jewish guy in his previous life. And he, he was sharing with us his testimony. He said, well, I decided to basically investigate Christianity to sort of give some pushback to my, my Christian friends. And so he said, I started reading Matthew. And he's like, the genealogy was fascinating. Suddenly reading the genealogy, it's like, what are they doing there? This is our history. This is Jewish. And it sort of, as he read through Matthew, he's like, Jesus is Jewish. He's fulfillment of our prophecy. And all of the light bulbs came on that this genealogy meant that it was true, that this isn't just some fairy tale that was made up. And this is exactly what, matthew is doing in his beginning and everything ties to 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 david and to abraham these 14 generations if you read them there's uh, they would skip from grandfather to great-grandchild which was totally acceptable in their culture The, the numbers are it's kind of convenient the whole 14 14 14 i'm not a big numbers guy i don't really go down those roads um Uh, the reason it's believed that they did this was for memorization. They, they were a culture that used the memory, they printing books. That was unheard of. There was no printing press. If you had anything written down, it was super, super expensive and rare. And so they committed to memorizing huge portions. And so the idea of the 14 to 14 to 14, this would be a way that they could easily recall the generations to know, um, even more so, and I don't want to go too far down this road, but it's been suggested. Well, it's not suggested. The, the reality is, is there were no the, the numbering system used their alphabet. There were no vowels, and so uh, letters represented numbers. Um, there were not numbers to represent numbers, and so the word David in Hebrew there is no uh, vowels. It's D V D, coming of the future DVD player. <laughs> D was the letter the number four, V was the number six, and if you take D you take D V D, you add it, four, six, four, that's fourteen. And so that would be everything sort of linked Jesus by fourteen generations. This powerful like one pastor suggested that if Jesus wore a jersey it would be number fourteen. That was a joke. You guys can laugh. You guys are a little too serious this morning here. <laughs> it was his joke, not mine. I was just repeating it, so I don't uh, know. But so all of these numbers, 14, there's not, I don't think there's any, I think it was all just a sort of a a device to to help them memorize. And I think that the point of what Matthew is, is saying is all of these names, all of these records, they're public information. You can go to the temple, you can see them, you can verify what I'm saying. This is public knowledge. We don't have this information anymore because of the destruction of the temple and then later at the libraries of Alexandria Everything was destroyed, so a lot of history was was ruined. I think it was a way for God to preserve and to continue his authentication of who Jesus was. Now, when we look at the, 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 the genealogy presented in Matthew, contrasted with the genealogy presented in Luke, um, it, it can be quite confusing. There's a slide here, and I want to explain it to make it clear to you what is going on. I'm not going to look at every single name, but you can go to the next slide. Um, and it's kind of blurry for you. But what I want to point out is you have the house of David. So here's David, the patriarch. Uh, the Davidic line would come through him. It was promised, uh, the, this covenant was promised to him that through him, there would be a king that would reign eternally. On the left side, we have Matthew's genealogy that he presents for Jesus. On the right, we have Luke's account of the genealogy of Jesus. Both go to David, but one takes off from Solomon and one goes from Nathan. There's a reason for this. Matthew's case is he is presenting Jesus as the true and legitimate king over Israel, the eternal king. So all of these names that are right there on the front of your bulletin that I read through starting at Solomon, these are all kings of israel okay you can go through and read all of the kings of israel and all of those names appear there's some variants like joiachin so in the end in the new american standard it says uh, jeconiah and another translation it says joiachin or whatever so the same guy different spellings and there's a couple of these here um, for those of you that are going through uh david caught one i don't know how in the world he caught it uh Oh, Lila, a uh, little girl caught it. Uh, there's a misspelling, but it's not a misspelling. It's just a different name. Okay, back to the kinghood. So we go down here. Through the genealogy, we get to Jehoiakim in the New American Standard. It's highlighted here because there's a problem, okay? Uh, Jehoiakim following this, verse 11, jo- Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation. This guy is the last king of Israel, okay? These are his sons. They're in deportation. He would still have sons. These are guys who would rightly inherit the throne, but there's no throne to inherit because Israel has been taken over and Israel would not be a nation for 2,000 years later in 1948 when they were reestablished as a state. But he's the last king. But there's a problem with him because he was a wicked king. And so if we go to Jeremiah 22:20, 20, which you don't have to do, we would read about him... It says, God says this, thus says the Lord, for none of his offspring shall shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling in Judah. So this guy has a curse placed upon him by God, saying he will never through his blood have a son that will become king of Israel. Never. So we go through the names and we get down to Joseph Jesus' pop, right? In our text, in verse 16, I want to point something out to you. You were probably asleep by the time I got there. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. In the New American, the father of Manasseh, uh, we get all the way down. I'll start at verse 15 so you can hear the flow. Iliad was the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom the whom is not in the masculine, it is in the feminine. Everything at this point, we jump ship from Joseph and we go to Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Now, we know from the Gospels the story of Christmas that we're celebrating. Jesus was born of a virgin. Joseph is the adoptive father. Joseph adopted Jesus and raised him as his dad. There is no DNA going up to the line. Jesus, through the virgin birth, circumvents his paternal lineage. But the significance of Matthew following this is an adopted child has all of the benefits of a biological child. Make sense? So Jesus has all of the benefits of the kinghood. He legitimately is legally qualified to to be the heir of the throne. Now, Luke follows Mary's. She goes all the way up. He goes all the way up to David. She has the same. So, so Jesus is a very uniquely qualified person. He is legally heir to the throne of David to fulfill the Davidic kingdom. Because of his adoption, he circumvents the bloodline that would create a problem. And regally through Mary's like he holds the blood of David within him that qualifies him for the kinghood for us. No big deal, but it means everything to the Jewish person. And so that's why the genealogies are different, that Matthew is showing the successions of kings and that Jesus is qualified to inherit the kingdom in his own right. All right, now we're getting low on time. I'm not going to go through every name that's listed here. I, I, I don't know, 14 plus 14, you do that. You guys can do the math how many names. There's a lot of names there. And looking at at these names and sort of reading through them uh, one of the things that jumped out at to me is 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 the people listed in there there are a lot of skeletons that are sort of put on display like like things that Matthew didn't have to write about, it. he could have worded it differently, but the way he words Jesus's genealogy, he specifically is bringing skeletons of the royal closet out to the forefront that can be seen. And the big question that's asked is, why does he do this? And I do believe, along with many others, that the reason he does this is to demonstrate from the get-go that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Martin Luther says this, Christ is a kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. He comes from a bunch of hooligans. Uh, some of the people, the, the women in particular, jump out at me. The, the women, I can say this to be real. I was going to say the women have no business in this list. That's not to be offensive. This is a legalist. The, the, the women are not important for the case. is trying to make a point of his, of his of his pedigree, showing the kingdom the, that his rights to the kingdom. The women are not important; it's the men that are important to show the bloodline. And yet he includes four women, and they're they're not needed. Let me look at the first one, Tamar, verse three. You really, he should have just written, Judah was the father of Perez. And Perez was the father of Hezron. That's all that is important for this discussion. The mention of Tamar is not needed at all whatsoever. But he adds Tamar. And the Jew would know the story. It's a terrible story. Judah is the tribe. uh, There are 12 tribes of Israel. Judah is one of them. Judah is the tribe that Jesus comes from. And why in the world does Jesus come from Judah? Uh, This is is like the Jerry Springer tribe. This is terrible. (laughs) Judah, the founder of the tribe, has a son who marries Tamar. She dies before she gets pregnant. The law said that the next son would have to provide a son for her. That didn't happen. I think it was the third son. Nothing happened. She desperately wants a son. So what she does is she goes to the edge of town, dresses up like a prostitute. Here comes Judah. Hey, you don't, I don't know you. There's a prostitute. Sure, I'll give you some business. He gives her some business. He doesn't have any money on him. So he says, hey, take my ID card. I'll come back with and I'll pay you with a goat or whatever he paid him with. He just didn't have a goat on him. That's, that was a commodity back then. And he didn't have his driver's license. I, I keep thinking of a California state idea, but it, what it was it was a staff, a ring, a piece of like a way to identify himself. So you hold on to this. I'll go back. I'll send the money after everything's done. He go, he sends one of his staff back to go pay him with the with the goat or whatever. You can read about this in Genesis thirty eight. Um, the person goes back, they can't find her. He says, hey, the person was never there. He's like, oh, well, I went back. I tried to pay her. You are a witness of this, like whatever. Later it comes out, he finds out his daughter-in-law is pregnant. Let's have her killed. She's a harlot. And so he sends guys to go have her killed. I'm probably hacking the story to death, but you guys, this is just my recapping it in my mind. They go to kill her, and as they go to kill her, she's like, oh, yeah, here's the driver's license of the guy that got me pregnant. Go, go take this back to, to Judah. But it wasn't a driver's license. That would have been too obvious. It was a staff. And a and so then they bring it back, and he's like, ooh. ooh. <laughs> okay, we'll let her off the hook this time, boys. Don't, uh, don't, don't worry about this. Then the next person that's mentioned is Rahab. Again, Rahab is not needed. It could simply read that Solomon was the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed. But Rahab, if Tamar played the harlot, Rahab was the harlot. Remember her story, the spies go into Israel. She puts them up. They spy out the land. She says, I believe. She comes to faith. They say, okay, if you don't want to be destroyed, hide this out your window. We'll not do anything to you. She says, okay, have everything, anybody that you don't want killed, keep them in your place. They go in there. We studied Ruth earlier this year and it's fascinating, the tie. So Rahab <coughs> would marry Solomon, a Jewish man. They would have a son by the name of Boaz. Ruth, is a Moabite girl who goes back to Israel was an outcast, falls in love and marries Boaz, this honorable man who is raised by a prostitute, who that prostitute and 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 his dad Solomon raised him to be a man that would take in this Moabite girl who had converted. It's a beautiful intertwining of these names. And then we come down to David the king, and the last lady in the, de- the genealogy is Bathsheba, who we all know the story. The reality is Bathsheba's name is not even in this list. Her name is added by the English translators to help us follow the flow of thought. This is how it truly reads in Jesus' genealogy. David was the father of Solomon, Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Which when you read it that way, it sort of the whole, you know, David's little incident. If David happened today, David would have had an abortion. He would have forced her to have an abortion, but that wasn't an option. So he, this whole story of Uriah trying to like bring him back so he would sleep with his wife so that David would get off the hook. But this guy is such a man of honor and integrity that he refused to fall for any of the king's ploys. So then the king sends him back to the battle line with his death warrant in his hand to give to his commanders that say, send him deeper into the battle and then retract everybody else so he'll be killed. And so this guy who has, he has no part in, Jesus' genealogy, he's not a part of it, yet his name is there. It's, it's beautiful. And so when I look at this list of hooligans that then Jesus sort of spits out of, there's so much we could study here, but the thing that comes to mind is the grace of God is wide. This is a big net. That when I look at this list of names, there it's very clear that humanity is in desperate need of a savior. And through this list of sinners, the Messiah is born, fulfilling all sorts of prophecy. A friend of sinners, one who is willing to give his life to provide the salvation for those who need him. And so we sing songs this Christmas about come, let us adore him. The whole purpose that, that we adore him, the whole purpose that we marvel at him the statistics of you can't fulfill the prophecy the way he did the evidence is overwhelming that supports that jesus is who he claims to be and this is the whole point that matthew is making and my prayer is that i would have laid the foundation for us moving into Matthew, that when Matthew speaks of Christ, this isn't just blind faith. This is faith that has overwhelming evidence behind it so that when Jesus begins to challenge and prick us going through the gospel of Matthew, there's reasons that we should humble ourselves before him and follow after him. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this, this genealogy. I thank you, Lord, for... The validation that's found here, all that Jesus fulfills. Father, we pray that this Christmas season, as we celebrate His coming, Lord, you would help us um, not to get lost in the uh, the American celebration of this holiday of of just giving gifts and and um, things that detract from who Christ is. So Father, as we celebrate the birth of Christ this Christmas season through all of our traditions and fun and celebration, Father, we pray that you would help us to keep in the forefront that this Christ is not a fairy tale. He's not something that we've made up or was made up. That this is the living God who became man. That we might have life in him We thank you, Father, for uh, the evidence that you've presented. Father, we ask that you would help us to keep Christ lifted high in our own lives. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.